So, Jay, I'm surprised Forge ends up on so many super teams. Surprised how so, Miles? Well, it just seems like an odd fit for him. I mean, I'll buy him as backup or even the boss, like with X-Factor, but it just seems like a guy who'd be happier doing his own thing. He takes plenty of time off. Honestly, as far as work-life balance goes, Forge is probably one of the better-adjusted mutants out there. What does he do when he's not saving the world? Uh, you know, invents stuff, has a lot of feelings about Storm. So, basically the same things he does when he's on a superhero team. Manages the odd Dazzler tour. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 259 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome, Jay, back to the show. Thank you. Yeah, you were uh, gone for two weeks. Thanks again to Lisa Winters for filling in last episode, but it's good to have you back behind the mic. Thank you. So I took some time off because I, I was in the middle of kind of a deadline hell, which is one of those things that happens when you book a lot of freelance gigs and then suddenly get a day job and there's the period of really intense overlap. Um, and also my mic stand broke last week, so it's extremely kludged together now. So while I am technically behind the mic, the mic is um, definitely significantly more precarious than it was two weeks ago. We'll see where that goes. It, it kind of feels like um, like I'm, I'm just sort of surfacing from from entropy to into which I will I will dive back as soon as we finished recording. Okay, so listeners, if you hear like a scream and a crash and then a hubcap rolls onto the screen because there's a screen now and you hear a cat yowling, like that's what's going on there. It's just all of that entropy catching up in the form of a destructing mic stand. Or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, we are going to get back to continuity land. Uh, and boy, howdy are we. This is like, this is the Ur continuity. This is continuity squared. This right here, this episode is a big part of the reason we decided to do this show. Yeah, uh, we are going to be having some fun with a meta retcon today, a retcon of a retcon. Man, how deep does this retcon go? Actually, I don't think this retcon, this is, by the way, the Psylocke Quanon retcon, for those keeping track at home, I don't think it's been undone again. It's been expanded a little bit more, but that's mainly been additions to it rather than re-re-re-writes. But that's okay, because I feel like it's it's complicated enough that it doesn't need to be redone again. It can just be here in all of its horrifying, horrifying glory. So we should lay the foundations for this, which I feel like are, are themselves complex enough to merit an entire episode, but we're going to try to rattle through them much faster. You can also take a look at a couple episodes we did about Psylocke's initial body transformation, and then Psylocke's initial body swap. We'll link to those in the visual companion. But first, let's go back in time and across the pond to England. Betsy Braddock was a fashion model, a psychic spy, the sister of Captain Britain, Brian Braddock, and for a time, she herself was Captain Britain in her brother's place. At least until she got her eyes ripped out by a bad guy. Thankfully, Mojo, ruler of the media-obsessed Mojoverse, and Spiral, his enslaved techno-sorceress, gave her new eyes. Unbeknownst to Betsy, her new peepers broadcast her every sight to the Mojoverse, which probably got pretty awkward sometimes, you know? Awkward and also probably just really boring a lot of the time. You know, we do interesting things and look at interesting things, although probably kind of nauseating because she, she did a lot of, like, jumping around and fighting. And if you think, like, handheld first-person camera is rough, man... Yeah, I'm going to go with uh, boring. So my day job is working in an IT department, and I noticed that a lot of our users will put little pieces of masking tape or sticky notes over their webcams that are built into their computer displays. And I mean, okay, fair enough. Security's fine. A little paranoia is healthy. But at the same time, do they really think we would actually want to watch them stare slack-jawed at their computers all day? I mean, that's what I do at my computer all day. Yeah, like... You're not, it's not hiding what's on their screens. It's literally just hiding their faces as they watch them. No one's getting naked in that office. It's it's got windows in pretty much every door. Maybe they just make really funny faces and they don't want anyone to see them until they've perfected those funny faces. But if they have the webcam off, then how can they actually pay attention to those faces? Do they have mirrors set up? Maybe. A complex system of mirrors. And if any of them are the Phoenix Force, they would attack those mirrors and destroy the cosmos. But meanwhile, back to Betsy Braddock. 
Betsy soon joined the X-Men as Psylocke, the team's resident purple-loving telepath. Things were going great until the whole team was forced to flee into the Siege Perilous, a magical portal that erased their memories and scattered them around the world. Psylocke washed ashore mindless at the secret island base of the Hand Ninja Clan. There, a guy named Matsuo Tsurayaba worked with the villainous Mandarin to transform Betsy's body from Caucasian to ambiguously and uncomfortably Asian, which was super awkward, and brainwashed her into being the Mandarin's personal assassin. Also, now she wears a thong. Wolverine and Jubilee helped free Psylocke from the Mandarin's control, and once again, she was an X-Man and things were going great. Until a woman showed up in what appeared to be Betsy's original Caucasian body. This woman went by revanche and claimed that she, in fact, was the real Betsy Braddock. After interrogating Matsuo and the crime lord Naoiren, the X-Men found out the truth. Psylocke's Asian body was really the body of Naoiren's assassin Quanin, whose mind had gotten telepathically scrambled with Betsy's when Betsy washed ashore after emerging from the Siege Perilous. Now, both bodies are messy mixes of the minds, skills, and powers of both Betsy Braddock and Quanin. But wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. In that first thing we talked about, Matsuo clearly found Betsy's body and transformed it after she came out of the Siege Perilous, which directly contradicts all of that Quanin stuff. What the hell? This the hell, Miles. This the hell. Oh boy. Okay, so let's just dive right in with our teeth gritted and loins girded, although not girded very much because we're wearing Psylocke tiny bathing suit outfits, I assume. We are absolutely not. Wait, I can see you on the camera. Like, you are wearing a t-shirt. I am definitely also wearing a t-shirt, so, I mean... Don't break the illusion for the listeners, Jay. They don't know. I, I feel like I'm really good with breaking this particular illusion. As long as they still believe I'm wearing sunglasses, I'm good. You are absolutely wearing sunglasses. Maybe. I'm literally always wearing sunglasses. I actually spent a lot of today on sunglasses at work because I forgot I had them on. Yeah, that's reasonable. Why are the streets of Rome so dark, Jay? <laughs> oh, Night on Earth reference. Well played. Anyway, let's talk about X-Men Volume 2, Number 31, The Butterfly and the Hawk, also known as Soul Possessions Part 1. You're listening to ZZ105. Hello, caller. You're on Hawk Talk. Hi, uh, my name is Warren Worthington III. Sorry, Warren Kenneth Worthington III. Hi, Warren Kenneth. How can we help you today? Well, I'm a literal hawk, and there's this girl I like, and she's not a literal hawk, but I think maybe she could be. I keep dropping these subtle hints, like she should wrap her claws around branches near the base of a tree, but I don't think she's getting it. Okay, Warren Kenneth. Now, the thing about hawks... The thing about, you know, metaphors is you gotta know what you're getting into. You say she's a girl, and I gotta say, some girls are hawks, some girls are butterflies, and other girls are entirely enormous cosmic space birds. So again, make sure that you're not trying to push this girl into a niche that she doesn't identify with or fit into. Now, if she is a hawk, like you, you're gonna want to approach her very carefully. You've got serious talents, as I'm sure you know, being a hawk, Warren Kenneth. Well, I mean, obviously. Before we answer this question, though, I, I want to I wanna kind of ask you a couple questions so we can know what we're getting into. First of all, who the hell names a hawk Warren Kenneth? What, what is wrong with your parents? Well, it's kind of a long story. Did you ever read Hamlet? Absolutely. Not only that, but I learned to differentiate a hawk from a handsaw. Anyway, this is Jane Miles Explain the X-Men, not Jane Miles do hawk talk. I mean, it's occasionally that. Hawk Talk. X-Men number 31, Hawk Talk, is written by Fabian Nicieza, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked by Matt Ryan, colored by Lovern Kinzierski, and Digital Chameleon. Now, Digital Chameleon is, in fact, as you might have gathered, not on anyone's birth certificate. It's a colorist collective, and Lovern Kinzierski was one of the founders of that collective. And, Jay, so when I was reading comics back in the 90s, coloring was... Pretty good. I mean, you had a lot of really dedicated colorists, but right around 1994, when Digital Chameleon and other digital colorists started taking over, it was a quantum leap in awesome colors for the eyes of young Miles. There were gradients everywhere. There were shadows. Some things were all, like, uh, pale and fuzzed out. Others were very sharp. It was amazing. In context of this story, would you perhaps describe it as a quantum leap? A quantum leap. I totally would. She does jump around, like, a lot. Her and Gambit both. 
Yeah, yeah, no, they're, 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 I, I assume that they both just sort of move in the same video game character doesn't want to walk mode. Exactly. It's either jumping or doing rolls forward all the time. But I don't know. I mean, whether the digital coloring holds up, I actually couldn't tell you just because this is so much what the comics I was buying looked like. Like, this is what the 90s are supposed to look like in my head. How is it for you, Jay? I mean, you didn't come into comics until a little later, at least not X-Men. I mean, it's Andy Kubert, and Andy Kubert is fantastic. While I know that Jim Lee originated the character, Kubert for me is in a lot of ways the definitive Psylocke artist at least um, for, for this iteration, this generation of Psylocke. And he does some really cool stuff in this story in particular. He's, he's a really expressive artist. He's a lot of fun. And I think he does a very, very good job of referencing and you know, staying t- connected to that, that Jim Lee image school while maintaining much stronger narrative sensibilities that got lost among, I think, a lot of the more central members of that. Yeah, I would agree. And honestly, for me... Once there are digital colors on his pencils, that's kind of where his art really comes alive. This part right here, this part of continuity. Yeah, and this is this is yet another place where I feel like we can't emphasize enough, and the world can't emphasize enough, that color color art in comics is art. It is a fundamental part of the art and of the narrative and of the storytelling of any color comic. And anyone who doesn't credit colorists is kind of a jerk. Mm-hmm. But speaking of, you know, narratives in comics... What happens in this issue? It's time to retcon the retcon. Here's what actually happened, at least the story that we're introduced to here. Quanan was an assassin in service to Lord Nyoran. Matsuo was sworn to the hand, and they were in love despite knowing that they were probably going to have to fight to the death at some point because they were both assassins and they worked for different people and, you know. It's kind of inevitable when you're, when especially when you're in a narrative context, that that those tropes are going to come into play. It's like if Romeo and Juliet dressed like ninjas and were uh, older. I feel like it's kind of the romantic equivalent of um, Nightcrawl of Kurt and Stefan's thing, where where Stefan was like at, at a slumber party was like, "If I ever go evil, you have to promise to kill me." Okay, Kurt, and Kurt was like, "Okay, we're like eight, but sure." Mm-hmm. Um. This is this is sort of the grown-up romance version of that because because Quanan makes Matsuo swear and she swears that if they ever if they ever do have to fight each other they will each absolutely give it their best because they wouldn't be themselves if they didn't and you know they owe it to each other to be as murderous as possible. And Matsuo is much more of a romantic. He's much more of a lover than a fighter a lot of the time and he doesn't like this idea. But he still goes along with it, and in fact, they, they end up fighting, as rival assassins do. Um, Matsuo had actually suggested that they throw themselves off a cliff together uh, to avoid fighting. Um, and ironically, toward the end of the fight, he overpowers Quanin, and she does go over a cliff alone. Um, now, in addition to the usual cliff fall injuries, she also briefly drowned and ended up severely, severely brain damaged. So the body swap, as it really, really happened, for real this time we swear, was actually Matsuo's attempt to save Quanan with the help of Spiral, who, as we know, with her body shop, can do all sorts of stuff with bodies and souls and genetics and extra arms and stuff like that. What's going on here? In, instead of Emerge, instead of Betsy just being genetically altered, this is an actual sort of body swap. Um, this is an attempt to save Quanin, Um, and the idea is that Betsy washed up. She's amnesiac. She's a telepath, which means her brain's going to be extra receptive to the fact that Quanin's got some latent um, telepathic abilities, and they can just sort of transfer her over. Now, Spiral messed with it. Spiral went, well, first of all, she's a lot more brain damaged than you realize, so I'm going to have to do some splicing, and also I'm Spiral, so I'm just going to kind of mess with everyone for the fun of it. And... I actually like this version of the backstory significantly better than either of its predecessors, for one specific reason especially, which is that it centers Quanan, which neither of the others does. Exactly. In the previous retcon, Quanan was just an assassin who happened to find Betsy Braddock when she washed up from the Siege Perilous, and a big telepathy explosion happened, and that's what scrambled their minds. And here, this is, this is again, this is something that is about Quan, and it's not about Betsy. Betsy just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time for it, which makes the fact that Quanan is the one who dies slightly more palatable to me. Um, now, 
The other thing that this particular version remembers, which which gets forgotten way too much around this character, is that Betsy's got a lot of history with the Mojoverse and with Spiral. Right, because after Betsy got her eyes ripped out by Slaymaster, in one of the X-Men annuals drawn by Alan Davis, she got robot eyes so that everything she did, all of her various adventures, were just projected, streamed straight to the Mojoverse. And she never told any of her allies about this, which I can kind of understand because they would totally freak out. I feel like it's really creepy that she didn't tell them, especially once she found out that that was happening. Like... There are major, major consent issues here. Oh, don't get me wrong. I completely agree. I'm just saying that's a motivation I can get. I mean, Betsy was terrified that she would lose her eyes again or that she would lose the trust of these people who were starting to become her family. And so she lied by omission. Now, because of the body swap, those bionic eyes are no longer Betsy Braddock's problem. They are Quanon's problem. And Quanon's solution is... Much more direct than any Betsy that it has ever used. Um, she leaves, she flees the Xavier Mansion, she leaves a note, and she also rips out her eye, bionic eyes and leaves them under Charles Xavier's bed like some kind of eye fairy. Oh man, that's that's amazing. Better than an eye killer, I guess. But I feel like we should disambiguate here. So we've been talking about Betsy, we've been talking about Quan, and we've been talking about Salak, we've been talking about Revanche. One thing this re-retcon really does is it makes it clear that while the two women's minds are a little bit scrambled up, for the most part, Betsy Braddock's original British body mostly has Quan and the Assassin's mind in it. And Quan and the Assassin's original, we still don't know where in the continent of Asia body, mostly has Betsy Braddock's mind in it. So it is pretty much a swap. Thus, when we say Betsy, we mean Psylocke in the Asian body. When we say Quanon, we mean Revanche in the Caucasian body. I realize that's confusing. It's confusing for us too. It's okay. We're only going to have to keep track of one after this story. Exactly. It turns out that part of the reason for that confusion was was what spiraled in, you know, the fact that Quanon's mind was much more damaged than she'd realized. But part of it is also that Nyoren basically gaslit her into thinking that she was maybe partly Betsy so that he'd have better control over her. And she was so confused and upset and had, you know, Betsy's telepathy that she was basically mixing Betsy up too. And that was, that was extending. And the state of her powers, the state of her telepathy is something that is in intense flux right now, because remember, she's got the legacy virus. And one of the things that the legacy virus does, especially in its later stages, is vastly, vastly amp up mutant powers. So for Quanon, what that's meant is that in addition to having much more powerful telepathy, she's been able to accurately reassemble a lot of her mind, either from the people around her or by just being that good at salvaging the pieces of her memories from her own, her own brain. So for the first time, she actually really solidly knows who she is. Now, back at the X-Mansion, Betsy decides that it's probably about time to tell everyone about those eyeballs and to see if they can work together to figure out what's going on. But as for Revanche herself, as for Quanon in Betsy's original body, she goes to meet up with Matsuo and to call him on a lot of his bullshit. Now she remembers the history they have together, and she just jacks right into his brain to figure out as much as she can about what really happened with that body swap— and about why, in the last version of this story, also written by Fabian Nicieza, the facts didn't even remotely line up with that. Now, there are, the way this is drawn, this is the thing I was thinking of when I was talking about the really cool stuff that Andy Kubert does here. Because Matsuo still thinks of her as the original Quanon, as her original body. And in the pages where she's talking to him, and they're, they're, they're fighting in real life, but also she's she's plugged into his mindscape her form varies and sometimes overlaps like it just it it alternates between the two it switches depending on whose perspective is central in that particular panel it's a really really cool trick it works really well it's disorienting but consistent enough that it really manages to get across what it's trying to do and the narrative thing it's going for something else i really appreciate is that kwanin is furious about this that Matsuo still thinks of her as, as you know, the Quanon that she was, because it's basically erasing and ignoring a massive, massive thing that she has been through that's been done to her and change in reality that she's having to live with. 
Exactly, yeah. And I mean, Ravage certainly got the raw end of the deal. She ended up in a body she didn't want to be in. I mean, that happened for both women. But the one she ended up in is actively dying. If she'd stayed in her original body, in theory, she would not have had the legacy virus. Plus... Hers was the mind that was super screwed up and so got much more of a kludge job surgery-wise from Spiral and brainwashing-wise from Nyoiren. And again, the legacy virus is is a double-edged sword here, and I really love the way that works for her because it's so bittersweet. Because the same thing that's killing her is the thing that finally allows her brief wholeness. And what does she do with that brief wholeness? Um, she, she... Goes up to Matsuo and she's like, yeah, so uh, you kind of fucked it up the first time. Please kill me so that I don't have to die slowly of this thing because it sucks. And you owe me that much. And Matsuo is is not into this plan, but he, he goes ahead and does it. And it actually plays out pretty well. Again, I think what works best about this story, what works best about this bit of the arc as compared to any other part of this whole saga is that it's Quanin is absolutely central in it. It's about Quanin. It's about Quanin taking claiming agency. It's about Quanin defining the way that she's seen and defining her experiences and refusing to be erased, refusing to be subsumed under either Betsy's identity, under prior brainwashing, or under you know Matsuo's romantic ideal. Yeah, and even though Quanan does straight up for real die at the end of this issue, halfway through this two-part story, the second part is still all about her legacy. As much as Betsy Braddock in Quanan's original body is the focal character of part two, like the shadow of revanche of Quanan just hangs over everything. It's still about her. As it should be. So, back in Westchester, Betsy, who's been spending more and more time with Warren Kenneth Worthington III, gets this gigantic psychic explosion from across the world and wraps her car around a tree because she senses that Quanan has just died. She's upset for the obvious reasons, but also because this means that she's never going to get answers about what's going on. But actually she will, because you know who was waiting in that tree by remarkable coincidence? Spiral. It's Spiral. But before we get to there, of course they're going to fight because everybody fights in comics. Let's talk a little bit about the side plot of this issue. It's a little thing, but it's really nice. And I appreciate that Nicieza always remembers to check in with the non-focal characters in his X-Men issues. Yeah. Now, this is about what's going to happen next bureaucratically to the school and to the team. Because Scott and Jean are on extended leave right now. And that means that someone has to step in and run Blue Team. And Professor X convinces a very reluctant Hank McCoy to basically be emergency backup Cyclops. Not only will he be running Blue Team, but he's going to be handling a lot of the team and mansion administration. Beast says, well, you know, you could just get Banshee to do it. He likes this shit. And Xavier says, well, actually, can't because Banshee is going to be busy running the school. Because you know how Emma Frost has been in a coma in the basement for like two years? Apparently, one of the things she did before said coma was to write up some paperwork that granted control of the Massachusetts Academy, her school where she used to teach the Hellions, to Professor Xavier. Well, she didn't just grant it. It was a living will saying in the case of her, her death or long-term incapacity. It would, it would go to him. And I assume that Emma Frost being Emma Frost and both ridiculously wealthy and ridiculously smart and organized that she has her affairs just massively in order. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I would love to see that document. I bet it is the most passive-aggressive last will and testament ever written. Oh, man, like every other word is just dedicated to increasing the ratio of shade to not shade. Oh, 100%. And, like, the things she leaves to people are all really, really insulting, but also really valuable. Emma Frost is such a glorious asshole. I love her. Yeah. So this is the first real on-page acknowledgement we've seen of the coming of Generation X, of there being a new school with new young mutants in it. We've seen little teases here and there, but for now it is clearly coming, and I'm excited. I'm so excited to cover Gen X. Oh man, me too. All those cool kids, and ah, that Jim Mafu issue. Yup, and the Chris Pachalo regular art as well. Yes. Oh man. Yeah, like... I gotta say, as as an old-school Vertigo kid, Chris Pacello art still hits me in, like, a visceral Pavlovian high school. 
oh my god, it's awesome place. I mean, it is awesome. It's great art, but but there's also like that degree of familiarity and it being one of the first artists whose work I could just recognize immediately. Yeah, totally me too. I was more of a Marvel kid, but damn if I didn't read a ton of Sandman and thus both Death miniseries and oh, so good. So there's also there's also a D-plot, and that is is Rogue and Gambit having a weirdly detailed conversation about breakfast cereal while wearing sexy pajamas. That's it. It's not really a euphemistic conversation. I kept on trying to read the, between the lines, but no, it's just like a really detailed description of, of, of how they like mixing breakfast cereals and the sludge at the bottom. It's totally a sexy conversation about the sludge at the bottom, though. They may not be euphemisms, but they're still just dancing around sensuality. No, there is nothing sexy about the sludge at the bottom of a breakfast cereal bowl. Like, that is something, again, that is something to which I have a visceral and Pavlovian reaction, and it is not a sexy one. Hey, don't yuck their chocolatey yum. No, I mean, I, more power to them, but I, I, I don't really, I, I, I just, I, uh, uh, uh. Well, let's turn to an issue that does not, as far as I remember, involve any sexy cereal. X-Men number 32, The Leopards and the Cats, a.k.a. Soul Possessions, part two. Written by Fabian Nicieza, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked by Matt Ryan, and colored by Kevin Summers, and once again, Digital Chameleon. Welcome back. You're listening to Season 105. This is Hawk Talk. Last you heard, we were talking to Warren Kenneth, a hawk with a thing for a lady who might have been a hawk and might have been a lady hawk. Remember that movie? That had some really, really informative bits about hawks and ladies and ones who turn into each other. Uh, okay, yeah, but ZZ105, I still had questions about uh, butterflies and hawks, but I've also been thinking about leopards and cats. Like, they're kind of similar, but they're not the same. Is one a superset of the other? I don't even know. Now... Okay, Warren Kenneth, I, I did not realize you were still on the line, first of all. My name is not ZZ105. I'm, I'm just the host of Hawk Talk. This is ZZ105 is our, is our host station. Do you know how radio works, Warren Kenneth? You, you, you live in there, right, ZZ? In the box. In the little box. You're listening to Hawk Talk. We'll be back right after these brief messages. So Spiral has indeed showed up to fill Betsy in on her incredibly convoluted backstory, to which Spiral played a pretty important part. Spiral's oh, also Betsy's here. convoluted backstory, not not um, Spiral's. Exactly. Spiral's convoluted backstory was covered in a previous X-Men annual. She was Ricochet Rita, Mojo messed with her, there was time travel. She does allude to that. She does. But interestingly, Spiral's also here to absolve her guilt, because now that Mojo is at least temporarily dead, she's sort of a free agent, even more than when she was in Freedom Force back in the day. And so she feels, I don't know about bad, but at least a little complicated about having fucked with Betsy and Quanon just for the hell of it. However, because it's the X-Men, first there's got to be a great big fight. Yeah, Betsy's anger is bigger than her curiosity, which, uh, to be fair, is pretty damn in character. And everyone attacks. Including the other X-Men, who show up complete with Gambit as he pins Spiral on the ground, saying his trademarked, Bane, you did. Dude, Chekhov's tagline. Yeah. And Spiral says, you know what? Fuck this. I came here to have a good time and I'm feeling so attacked right now. And so she teleports away, but not before saying, anyway, I told you what I needed to. Goodbye. Okay, but the way she phrases it is so great. If you take all the eyes you've been given and still choose to remain blind, how am I to blame? On the one hand, it's tangled spiral talk. On the other hand, no, no, literal eyeballs. Okay, all the eyes you've been given, though, implies that there are more. That again, you know, the eye fairy has struck again. I love the idea that, like... They just keep finding eyes around the Xavier Mansion, like just all different kinds. So some of them are toy eyes. So there's toy, little toy eyes with the the, the wind up feet, and and some of them are just actual eyes, and some of them are are you know the glass eyes that have have no you know the partial scleral shells and things like that. It's like a really creepy Easter egg hunt. Oh man, I would be so into that Easter egg hunt. That is that is the Easter egg hunt that I have apparently been waiting for to care about Easter egg hunts. Well, Betsy, to her credit, does take this opportunity to fill the X-Men in. She shows the X-Men the cybernetic eyes that Quanon left for her from Betsy's previous body. Interestingly enough, Betsy also mentions that her old body got those eyes months ago. That was a plot point that happened well before the mutant massacre. I really feel that with this sliding timeline murder that's happening right now, it's best we just ignore it. 
I mean, she's not wrong. It's just been more months than implied. That's true. I guess like 400 months, that still counts as months. I, I don't think it's been quite that many. I don't know. Sliding time scale. Who even knows? Aside from maybe Franklin Richards. I hear he's behind the whole thing. Uh, he would be. Well, anyway, she invites the X-Men to stay and watch as the Beast and Banshee find a way to activate the eye's recorded memories, and they all get a look at her backstory. I gotta say, like, we have emotionally available Cable, right? And now we have, like, courageously vulnerable Betsy. Nicieza is so good at writing X-Men that actually communicate and actually mature over time. It's really nice. It is. So it's time for more flashback. Now, we talked about the first part of the flashback that we got in the previous issue. We get a little more of it this time. This is where it starts to really jive with that first body transformation issue that was so directly contradicted by the last round of this whole mess. What we find here is that, yes, Matsuo did find Betsy Braddock's original body, and he made a deal with the Mandarin to also help, in addition to Spiral helping— what the Mandarin got was a custom-made assassin in Quanon's original body, but with Betsy's blank Siege Perilous mind. The idea was that the Mandarin would get an assassin that he could mold in whatever direction he wanted. That would have been mostly fine. I mean, Matsuo still would have gotten what was left with of Quanon's mind, albeit in a new body, but then things got even more complicated, thanks to a person who tends to make them even more complicated, Spiral. Spiral was just like... This is boring. Let's soup him up a little. So she overlapped Quanon and Betsy's minds and DNA significantly more than she'd been asked to. This was partially for kicks, partially to make things more interesting for her boss Mojo, who still wanted to watch all the superheroes do fun things, and partially, honestly, I think because Spiral saw that this was about love and her history with love was pretty messed up and she wanted to lash out at anybody who dared to feel it. Spiral has complicated issues and many arms. Both of those things. Spiral also stole revanche, that is to say, Quanon's mind, what was left of it, in Betsy Braddock's body, and gave that combination to Lord Nyoiren, who was the previous employer and lover of Quanon. So now, Matsuo didn't really have what he wanted. Nyoiren had a version of what he thought he wanted that was actually all messed up. The Mandarin had nothing aside from ten really sweet rings, including the Mento Intensifier. Nobody was happy, except Spiral. Was Spiral really happy? I don't think Spiral tends to actually be happy. I mean, I think occasionally she's, like, gleeful, but I'm not sure that's actual joy. Well, she was entertained, at least. So, that's where we leave the retcon. Again, we have most of a mind-body swap. We have a story that now jives basically with the original body transformation story, and we find out that apparently Nyoiren wrote his diary that gave us the previous retcon just to fuck with everybody, to make nobody trust nobody so that Matsuo couldn't get his their mutual lover back. Nyoiren figured, hey, if I can't have her, he can't either. I'm going to lie a bunch and hide my lies behind a painting that will get damaged in a fight, and oh god, this retcon, Jay, this retcon. This really just seems like a very overcomplicated way to accomplish this. I know. This is, um, what's the term? Sort of like a fix-it fic for the previous retcon? Oh, it's 100% a fix-it fic. It is absolutely a fix-it fic. Um, it, it, it is also just, just Rube Gold- it, it makes continuity that was already complex just a massive Rube Goldberg machine. Well, thankfully, by the end of the story, it's going to be simpler than it was, at least. So let's strive boldly forward to the end of the story. Psylocke is going to head off to Japan to finish this whole thing off to figure out as much as she can. In the meantime, as Gambit and Professor Xavier see her off, they have a nice little conversation. Gambit's been smoking outside because apparently Beast, now that he's in charge, followed through on his promise to make the mansion a smoke-free zone. Good job, Beast. And I can't even smoke in my own room. I feel like I'm a kid again, eh? I mean, you couldn't, you definitely were not allowed to smoke in the Xavier Mansion as a kid. That's, that's true. There is that. But as Psylocke leaves, Gambit reaches out to Professor Xavier saying, Hey, I just had a bunch of shit go down in the Gambit miniseries and Rogue's acting all weird and I can really use some advice and you seem like a nice, smart guy. Everybody's learning to communicate. Oh, Fabian Nicieza. I mean, Gambit, this is how you get retcons, but, you know, follow your heart, buddy. 
In Japan, Betsy tracks down Lord Nyoiren, who probably was the one that messed things up in his own way, almost worse than Matsuo did. He is sitting at his desk dead, and I, I really wonder if the prevalence of that staging in actual murders comes anywhere close to its frequency in fiction. I want to say probably not, but Matsuo is nothing if not a stylish assassin, and he does respect tropes, and so that's what he does. He kills Nyoiren and just leaves him there, and he's ready to just answer all of Betsy's questions. He feels awful about what happened, and he's going to do his best to atone, but like in a much less confusing way than Spiral did. It's still pretty confusing. Matsuo and Betsy head out to the cliff where Quanon fell all those time periods of, of some sort ago, and that's where they talk, and I really appreciate that they're actually very physically tender with each other. Like, they're very physically affectionate and close and comfortable. And on the one hand, like, Betsy barely knows Matsuo, and she mostly hates him. On the other hand, it's become very clear at this point that she's got Quanon threaded all through her mind, and Quanon loved Matsuo. And as strange as it is, as uncomfortable as it could be, it feels kind of consensual in a way that only something this complicated in a comic book could be, and I really appreciate both the dialogue and the art handling that so delicately. Yeah, again, this is this is one of those places where I feel like Andy Kubert pulls things off that I'm not sure anyone else could have. Matsuo explains, yeah, Nyaren was lying the whole time. Everything you thought you learned the last time we tried to do this retcon, it was all lies because he was so bitter about things not going his way, he just wanted to screw it up for everybody. And similarly, part the other part of why things were so confusing and everybody was acting a little out of character and violent, well, that's because Ravancha's telepathy was just messing with everyone. She was so angry at what happened and so confused based on her own damaged mind, and now everyone attempting to rebuild that mind and train it, that she was making everybody confused. That's actually really convenient right there. That's some really excellent retcon lubrication. Yeah, that's that's a really good gas leak season shortcut. <laughs> exactly. And apparently, as Revanche died at the end of the last issue, she somehow, let's not worry about it, transferred her, to her telepathy to Matsuo, or at least a part of it. She was able to do that again through the legacy flare as she died. Um, because again, her powers basically flared up, super exploded. What they did was transfer some of her memories and give him basically a trigger command. He's not functionally a telepath now, but he can do a couple very specific things related to Quanon, and one thing in particular. So Matsuo kisses Betsy in Quanon's old body, and he uses this residual telepathy whatever to give Betsy one final gift from Quanon. He removes all of Quanon's memory and personality from Betsy's mind. Now she is purely the mind of Betsy Braddock, in the body of Quanon, as straightforward as it could be after all this nonsense. And Quanon gets to actually have died. Her consciousness is then dispersed, and she um, gets as much peace as co superhero comics characters get, which is to say she's definitely going to come back, and it's not going to be pretty. Yeah, she does stay dead for quite a long time. Uh, actually, she's going to be very much back pretty soon by the look of it, but uh, we'll get to that later. Indeed. Matsuo, though, he is a broken man, and he wants to die. He grabs Betsy's katana and is about to kill himself so he can be with Quanon, so he can die with her and maybe encounter her in whatever comes next. Aw, oh, dude, come on. You don't just take someone's katana like that. That's really bad etiquette. Right? And, in fact, Betsy does talk him down. She had enough of Quanon in her identity, in her mind, to know that Matsuo may be a horrible, murderous dude, but that maybe there's some potential in him. Maybe he's actually kind of a good person in some ways. And I gotta say, this two-issue arc humanizes the fuck out of Matsuo, as much as he has, again, done some reprehensible things in the past. So, back home, Betsy and Warren have a romantic moment of romantically throwing Betsy's robot eyes into a lake. Yeah, it's the lake uh, that's actually on campus at the Xavier School where the New Mutants used to hang out on the edge of it. There's got to be so much weird, fucked-up superhero shit down there. Oh, unquestionably. So, Psylocke talks about how, you know, even after everything, she kind of is grateful to what Quanon did, to Quanon's role in her life, saying that Quanon challenged her. 
but that made her better and stronger. And to be better and stronger was all Betsy ever wanted. And I got to say that really jives with what we know of Betsy Braddock from back in the day before all this happened. And Warren has a moment of, yeah, I guess I kind of got some cool stuff from Apocalypse too. As Warren says, Makes us birds of a feather, huh? And Psylocke responds, It does. Perhaps then we can see how high we can fly together. Basically, teach me how to hawk, Warren. So we're talking to Betsy now on uh, Hawk Talk on ZZ105. Betsy, what's going on with you? Tell us your hawk problems. Well, what's going on with me is really way too long of a story, but the point is I used to be maybe a cat or a blind fashion model or something, and now I think maybe I could become a hawk, so I'm trying to learn everything I can about them. All right, now, Betsy, we're going to start out simple. Um, do you, you, you live in, where, where, whereabouts in the country do you live? Uh, upstate New York, near a lake full of a bunch of eyeballs, I guess. All right, fantastic. Eyeballs are great, but you're not a scavenger, Betsy. That's, you know, you gotta leave those for the crows and the ravens. Um, that's how you sort of establish decent relationships with those guys. What you're gonna go looking for, and there are gonna be a lot of them, um, around more in winter than this time of year, but they'll be active right now. Those, those are mice. Mice and small rodents. And I just, you know, I just want you to try eating one. Bones, fur, and all, seeing how that sits with you. Okay, I mean, I've become a lot more of a predator lately, and I feel like small rodents would be a good target for my hawk katanas. Right, so you're going to start out there, you're going to work your way up to rabbits. Um, eventually, depending on what breed of hawk you are, you might even upgrade further from that point. Uh, it's, it's, it's really up to you. If you find small deer, might even be an option if you've got small enough ones in the area, and if you've got strong enough talents. Whatever you do, though, you want to work your way up slowly. Make sure you get the hang of, of forming those hair, of, you know, the pellets, the hairballs. Make sure that you know, you know, you know how, to, how to do the fun stuff and then all your, all your business, and take it easy. You don't want to start hawking too quickly, because that is how you overhawk. Okay, okay, uh, got it. Start small. All right, I'm going to take my hawk katanas and go kill and eat a mouse right now. Thank you, Mr. ZZ105. I really appreciate you coming out of your little radio box to talk to me. What the hell is in the water in Westchester? This is Hawk Talk, signing off. So, what do we think of the three explanations for Betsy's transformation slash body swap? There was the original one that was clearly just a transformation, the second one where it was almost accidental, and then the third one where it was more of a deliberate swap. What do you like best, Jay? I like the third one. I think the third one is by far and away the best written, and again, I think it's the one that effectively centers Quanon, which is, in my opinion, really the only way to make that story work. Yeah, as much as I have a great deal of affection for the original story, simply because it is some incredible Chris Claremont writing, I think that was him writing at the height of his powers right there, it's also uncomfortable, and yeah, it really does remove the hell out of Betsy's agency, and that of course is before Quanon even exists narratively, so she doesn't get any either. I feel like this is about the best way you could make lemonade out of these continuity lemons right here. And that brings us to, speaking of continuity lemons, X-Men 33, The Heart of Thieves. is written by Fabian Nassesa, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked by Matt Ryan, and colored by Digital Chameleon. And, oh, this is a fun one. You know, you were talking about how Matsuo is kind of a terrible guy, but but he's a terrible guy who we actually kind of like. This, this issue centers around a couple kind of ter- a couple varyingly terrible guys. And... This is this is a baby gambit flashback story. Baby gambit, he's seventeen in it. Um, so baby gambit. Um, it is told by Sabretooth to Rogue, and I gotta say, Sabretooth is a fantastic, fantastic narrator because he is just the right kind of unreliable, but he's also his voice is a whole lot of fun, and this is a, has a lot of fun with it. Yeah, he's basically playing gravelly, murdery Hannibal Lecter here. Well, I mean, differently murdery, to be fair. Because, yeah, he's telling Rogue this story of young Gambit to basically fuck with her trust in him, but he's also just fucking with her. He's also, you know, he's he's basically like, he's hard-boiled Hannibal Lecter. He's not, he's not, he does not have the refinement factor going on. Oh, no, not at all. But he makes some kind of interesting points. He's like, oh, yeah, so by the way, isn't it cool how Professor Xavier took me, this unrepentant murderer, in and is helping me, and he still hasn't effectively helped you with your powers when you've cooperated with him every step of the way? That's just interesting, isn't it, right there? What do you think, Rogue? I assume that he's, he's still got the thing over his mouth. 
Yeah, yeah. Maybe he's just, uh, maybe him and Maverick uh, can bond over both having been in Team X and both having a really hard time talking clearly with that crap on their faces. <sighs> now, this is the what happened in Paris that Sabretooth alluded to a few issues back in X-Men 28. And most of this is going to take place in, in, in flashback. We get Sabretooth's narration, which again is a lot of fun. It's hard-boiled. He's, he's terrible, but he's not quite, he hasn't quite gone over the edges that he's gone over by the time the story takes place. He's still terrible. He's still really murdery, but he's a little more collected. He's just enough to be a really fun central villain. Um, so Gambit was, was a bit shy of his 18th birthday and managed to rescue a girl whose Sabretooth was menacing. And this, this, this damsel in distress is Genevieve d'Arsenault, the daughter of an infamous and imprisoned jewel thief. Uh, does she have any kind of a literary basis? That name sounds, I don't know, literary. Yeah, I assumed so. Um, Dr. Internet did not give me any good results. I assume that someone listening will uh, immediately say, oh, well, I know that reference and 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 explain it to me if, if it is in fact one. So preemptively, thank you to that person or those people. We will look forward to learning. Uh, and uh, speaking of, thank you to the many listeners who pointed out that Rachel Summers' future alter ego, Alizarin, is probably referring to the color Alizarin, which is a type of red dye, which, um, yes, it was almost certainly that, and we had no idea, and now we know. That's really cool. So Sabretooth had been hired by a Canadian financier named Martin Herzog, from whom Genevieve had stolen a very fancy necklace while they were having an affair. But before Sabretooth can effectively menace and or kill her, Gambit dives to the rescue. He's 17, and he's adorable, and he's in Paris for some kind of teeth test, but first, he's gonna catch Sabretooth just off guard enough to get away with Genevieve. And I love Gambit's 17-year-old look. It's kind of like his current one, you know, there's, some, there's like a hot pink breastplate, and there's a coat, but everything is just very gothy. It's exactly the sort of thing a 17-year-old would think would look cool. It's like he's doing a stealth cosplay of Darth Vader while he's being a sexy suave thief or possibly this is when he wasn't quite a good enough thief to go for the full neon and metal boots and so was actually dressing almost kind of a little bit sens sensibly oh that's why he's wearing black okay that makes a lot of sense yeah now um gambit is there with his brother Henri and Henri's mustache, which deserves its own crediting, um, as, as we've discussed previously. They get some, some debriefing and some cautionary cautioning. Gambit is playing fast and loose with the rules. Henri's reputation is on the line as well. Um, he needs to do it right. And so Gambit says, well, I'm, I'm going to seduce it out of her. That's how I'm going to do it. Meanwhile, there's a grim moment where Herzog tells Sabretooth off for smoking in almost exactly the language that Xavier used to chide Gambit for the same, which is a really nice point of parallel. It is, and one that's going to pay off in a way that was never planned at this point many years later. Yeah, so Gambit seduces the girl, promises never to hurt her, steals the necklace, and abandons her. Okay, I have a question here. So Gambit 17, that's been established— that Martin Herzog guy, unless he just looks really old for his age, has got to be in at least his late 30s, probably much older. And he's balding. He looks very middle-aged. Genevieve has dated both of them. I'm just saying somebody here is not obeying the half-your-age-plus-seven rule or probably the age of consent. I don't know. No, they actually all could be if she's in her mid-20s. Would that work mathematically? Okay, let's just assume that's what's going on. It's more comfortable for everybody. Yeah, anyway, this is this is this is also Sabretooth telling the story. So how much of this actually happened and how it went down relative to what he's actually saying, you really can't be sure. Yeah. Because again, this is filtered through the perspective of someone who we know lies and who we know specifically is using this to mess with Rogan Gambit. He's specifically he's trying to destabilize pretty much everyone at the mansion. So we don't really know. Now Speaking of destabilization, Sabretooth's response to this, to, to Gambit getting the necklace that he'd been sent to retrieve, is to say, okay, fine, my turn, my move. So his move is to kidnap Henri and Genevieve, tie them up and dangle them by ropes out of the top of Notre Dame Cathedral, where he tells Gambit, throw over the necklace, I'll catch it, and I'm going to have to drop the ropes to do it, but I, you'll, you'll probably be able to catch one of them. It's like that scene at the end of X-Men Unlimited number four, except it makes significantly more sense. 
And in fact, even though Gambit does try to throw the necklace to Sabretooth's feet to maybe see if he won't drop both people, Sabretooth does, and Gambit, of course, chooses to save his brother and his brother's mustache, and Genevieve falls to her death. But she lives just long enough to tell Gambit as he cradles her that she would have just given it to him if he'd asked. Why did he think he had to do this? She would have just given it to him. That seems unlikely. But it's real tragic, though, isn't it? And again, how much actually happened? How much is Sabretooth just fucking with Rogue? We don't know. But he does it effectively enough to plant a lot of doubt in Rogue's mind about a lot of the things that Gambit's been saying to her. And as much as Gambit tries to say, hey, baby, I've changed, Rogue and we the readers are left to wonder, yeah, well, how much? But I love that Sabretooth did this. I mean, I don't love that he did it because it was terrible, but it makes sense because as is briefly referenced in this issue, as he thinks back to Lenny Zauber, the woman that turned out to be Mystique and totally betrayed him, and his shitty son, Graydon Creed, that came from that union, Sabretooth hates love, and he has nothing but disdain for people who even dally with love at all. And so part of this was him being a sadist in general, but part of what he did, I think, was to teach Gambit a lesson, that love will only ever hurt you. Part of what he's doing, too, I think, is playing at that parallel. Because the thing is, he mentions here that he and Gambit have some other shared history that he doesn't go into. Especially knowing what that shared history is going to turn out to be. I think this is his way of telling Gambit, you know, you've got your hero stuff on, but I know what you really are, and we're not actually that different. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, the issue ends with a lead into the next arc, where Beast decides he's got to go to find Mr. Sinister to see what is going on with the legacy virus, to steal some of that data. And he goes to Sabretooth to get some help. So that's going to be a whole thing. Uh, first, though, he insists he um, enlists Jubilee for help, because God knows that's an appropriate team-up to do. Let's definitely get the kid and the really scary murder guy on a team together comic books. Speaking of comic books, we have listeners and they have questions, and we're going to do things a little differently this time. We're not going to answer specific questions, but the fact is, the new line of X-Men books have just been announced as we are recording this. They'll have been announced for a few weeks once this episode goes up, and a lot of listeners have gotten in touch with us through various methods to ask what we think about this whole thing, what we think about the House of X and Powers of Ten miniseries that are opening this era of the X-Men and the six permanent ongoing X books that have been announced to be coming out of them. Um. So have you have you read House of X number one yet? I have, and we won't spoil it, but I will say I was fascinated by it. I am so intrigued, and I have no idea where things are going to go, and I'm actually really excited to be an X-Men fan right now. It is a very, very Hickman book um, for everything that implies, if you're familiar with his other work. I'm enjoying it. My feelings about this line are complicated and frustrated because... It, it, it shows every indication that it's going to be neat. It's going to be really interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes. I'm also really, really frustrated that once again, the chance to really be the auteur in the Marvel line that is specifically a gateway for the most marginalized readers and serves frequently as a metaphor in lieu of actual representation has gone to a straight white dude. Yeah, I I completely agree. I mean, I like Jonathan Hickman's work a great deal, but it's one of those things, like, I don't know, it's like problematic elements in fiction. If you have a problematic element as part of a plot in one story, great, but when it keeps coming up in, like, every story, that's where it's a little iffy. And this is, this is so, again, this is, this is just, it's really frustrating. It just keeps on happening, and again, I like Hickman I like his work. By all accounts, he's a great dude. He seems very excited about this in ways that make me pretty happy as a reader. Um, I, I like I like the way he writes Cyclops, which is very important. Um, mm-hmm. is, 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 is what events, you know, live or die on for me. But yeah, I just, I, I, I wish that they'd gone in a different direction. 
Well, let's talk about the books in question. So we have the two interlocking miniseries, House of X and Powers of Ten, that are coming out right now. As we're recording this, House of X number one is the only issue of those that's come out. But we've also seen the six ongoings coming out of things. We have Marauders, which is about pirate X-Men, basically. Excalibur, which is a team with a very interesting lineup, including Psylocke as the new Captain Britain, which is pretty cool. X-Force, which is sort of a Black Ops and Hit Squad CIA kind of deal. New Mutants, which is basically the old school New Mutants with a side of Generation X. The Central X-Men book, which it sounds like is going to be a bunch of different characters. And a book called Fallen Angels. Well, there's also going to be a second wave of titles coming. Those haven't been announced yet, but some of their creators have. And I feel like it's worth pointing out in particular that two of our very favorite X writers, Leah Williams and Vida Ayala, are going to be on some of those. Yeah, I was overjoyed to read those names in that context. They both do such good work. Yeah, and I should say too, because I think this is this is this episode is squeaking just under it, so you've still got a little time to get tickets. That Vita's actually going to be joining us um, on our live panel at FlameCon um, coming up on August seventeenth and eighteenth. Yes. Uh, yeah, I believe we're there on the seventeenth on a Saturday. Yes, um, in in New York, it will be delightful. Um, there will be Hawk Talk probably. I mean, how could there not be? But I do want to go back, just lest we uh, tease people unnecessarily. So the new Fallen Angels, yes, it's called Fallen Angels. It's actually about, apparently, Quanon, Laura Kinney, and Young Cable. So I don't know that we're going to see any dinosaurs or telepathic lobsters, but the fact that somebody actually remembered that that was a great series and is reusing its name, even if it's totally different, still makes me happy. Okay, that's going to be an amazing team, lo- though. This is going to be, like, the the grumpiest teens whether and i know most of them aren't teens anymore but but they're still going to be the grumpiest teens i love the fact that we're going to have a team of three characters and laura kinney is probably going to be the most cheerful among them yeah but beyond that i don't know it's a it's a good mix of old school titles and concepts with very very modern twists and i feel like that's a good way to do it it has nostalgia baked in but that's not the focus the way it has been to the detriment of the line sometimes So I want to add, too, because this is Hickman, it is incredibly, incredibly dense. And it's one of those things that if you are like me, it is fun to read with a fine-toothed comb or to read with the product of someone else's fine-toothed combing. And a couple of friends of the podcast, Chris Edelman and um, Roberto Secundus, have actually written incredibly detailed annotations to that first issue over at Xavier Files. We'll link to that in the visual um, the visual companion to this post but if if that's the kind of thing you like i highly recommend checking them out if nothing else it's a really good really interesting conversation now we are a fully listener supported podcast and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional concepts and characters hey angry claremontian narrator what do you have to say ah michelle shea you thought you had a fresh start free of the sins that you had been carrying for a lifetime After all, who here knew you, or what terrible choices had driven you to run from your past, never daring to look back? Certainly the last person you expected to find was Benjamin Aldred, the keeper of your deepest, darkest secret. Now, Michelle, only one question remains. Can you destroy Benjamin before Benjamin destroys you? And now the mic goes to Mr. Sinister. Envy, thy name is Sinister. For over 100 years, I have been gently, lovingly guiding genetic lines and identities. A cloned vessel for the Phoenix Force here. A perfectly constructed messianic offspring there. And now... A love-struck assassin lord and a six-armed former stunt woman have put me to shame with their inadvertent twin masterpieces of purple chaos. This is but a minor setback. Sinister has always played the long game. My agents shall await Eli Terrio's emergence from the Siege Perilous. A blank slate, but oh so powerful. And when Mr. Ginger 92 falls during a romantic assassin's duel, I shall be waiting as well. From there, shall simply be a matter of a light identity dialysis bath, 
some basic genetic overlap protocols, and the most subtle shared brainwashing regimen. And then, the world shall meet Mr. Terrio 92 and Eli Ginger. Where does one stop and the other begin? The answer to that question is sinister. And with that, Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And be sure to come see us at FlameCon. Next week, Havoc might finally get a chance to finish his dissertation. But he won't. Hello, you're on Hawk Talk. Hey, uh, my name's Al, and I have some questions. Uh, my, my hawk, I, I love it, but it's been making some real weird noises lately. Um, you think it's, it's like more of a screech or a call? Uh, it's kind of a rattle, like when I, uh, when I shift to third, mainly, maybe every other time. All right, now, what it sounds like is going on, my friend, is that your hawk has a loose heat shield or other metal bracket. Now, that's a pretty easy fix. It's one you can, might be able to do at home, but you might actually want to get a veterinarian out to double-check to get under your hawk's hood. Make sure that he's moving the right pieces around. Okay, yeah, because uh, my hawk, I mean, you know, it takes me down the sweet roads of life just fine, but uh, it doesn't really have much of an appetite for mice these days. Well, hoping your hawk gets its groove back. Listeners, that's all we've got for today. Thanks for tuning in on Hawk Talk, only on ZZ105.